Good morning and welcome to our online service here at City Church. My name's Jay. I'm the director of worship here, if you're new. Uh, we begin every service with a call to worship. And so this morning we're going to read Psalm 145, the first 10 verses. And I would encourage you to listen to these words and prepare your hearts for worship. So listen as I read. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our God and King, and we gather together this morning to bless your name now and forever. You are great and greatly to be praised. So please help us as we worship together now, as we sing these songs, as we hear from your word, as we take communion together. May we meditate upon your wondrous works. And through this meditation, may we declare your greatness as one people today. God, many of us are struggling to be present. Many of us, perhaps, our hearts are not moved by any of this. To that, please, God, do a mighty work today. That those who are struggling in these areas would have renewed faith. We ask all of this in the power of Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing together.
worship him in humbleness oh praise him alleluia
See the old my judgment prone, rock of ages left from me. Let me hide myself in City Church family, it's great to be with you. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community walking with God in our city. Man, the countdown is really getting serious. Lord willing, this is the second to last time we'll be uh, pre-recording our service on Saturday night. If you haven't heard yet, uh, we are aspiring to go inside to our sanctuary to resume our indoor services on January, excuse me, not January, June the 6th, June the 6th, the other J month, June the 6th. So uh, this is the second last time we'll be pre-recording on Saturday night, June 6th, Lord willing, we will be back in our sanctuary, uh, and that will be at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If you are watching this uh, virtually on YouTube or listening on iTunes and um, you are kind of waiting to maybe come back to services until we went back into our sanctuary. Now is your time, starting on June 6, 9 a.m., 11 a.m. If you'd rather uh, continue to watch online, if you're not comfortable coming to an in-person gathering, yet we will be live streaming our 9 a.m. service. So typically we would record this service and then we would drop it early Sunday morning. You could watch it anytime. Now you're going to actually have to wait until our live stream um, on Sunday at 9 a.m. Then after that 9 a.m. service, the service will stay on YouTube. It'll stay on iTunes. You can watch it anytime. So that's just a, a heads up. We'll give you a lot more information. If you want to learn more about our services and understand what they're going to be like when you return, you can go to our website, citychurchgnv.com. When you go to our website, you go to our about section of our website, and you'll see there's some COVID updates, and we'll, we'll put it all kinds of links there so you'll know where to get the information to know what to expect. We're going to do everything that we possibly can to be hospitable. And in about a week, I'll make a kind of a separate video and post it online that will give you even more information. Everybody will be very informed. That is our guarantee. And you can be praying over this transition as well. It's been a long time coming. Uh, we're going to have gone like, I don't know, 60 or so Sundays without meeting in our sanctuary. So we are very excited about this opportunity to continue transition. Thank you uh, for persevering. We would love to pray for you this week. Uh, you can send us your prayer request if you go to citychurchgnv.com slash connection, citychurchgnv.com slash connection. If you go there, 
to that URL. You can fill out a virtual connection card. We will pray for you, and then you can also see on that card there's ways for you to connect with us, tell us who you are, ask us questions about our church. We will get back to you. Usually it takes us a day or two, but we're very responsive to those. You can always email me, uh, call the church, stop by. There's a lot of ways to get in touch with us, bottom line. We worship a generous God. Part of our responsive worship as a people of God is giving generously. You can give online, citychurchgnv.com slash give, or again, you can come to an in-person gathering. These last two Sundays in May, we're outside at First Magnitude, but again, we're inside starting on June 6th. We'd love to see you, love to get to know you in that way. Community groups are going for a couple more weeks, not too late to get involved, citychurchgmv.com slash cg. Um, go to our website, call us. There's a lot of information. Then they'll go on break. During the month of June, uh, all of our community groups will be on break. And then in July, a couple of them will be kind of coming back online early in the month. And then the rest will start again in August. We'll give you more information about how that will work. But it's not too late to try to meet some people now before they go on break, and there will be opportunities in the month of June outside of our community group rhythms to get to know our church family and to meet some of us, and so you can stay tuned for more information. Even though a lot of you watching virtually have not been coming to our outdoor services at First Magnitude, if you would like to say thank you to First Magnitude for hosting us, which we are doing, we're, kind of, we're thanking their co-owner at our in-person services uh, that are happening uh, this Sunday, at first meant to, but if you're not able to come to that and you still want to write a note or something just to kind of say, hey, thank you for making that possible. If you want to be a part of that, send, email me a note, put something in your connection card. We will pass all of our thanks on to Christine Denny, who's been an amazing contact and ally for us for these past, you know, over a year, basically a year now. So if you want to show appreciation for letting us uh, use that outdoor venue, email me something, put something on your connection card, we'll pass that along. We have a unique opportunity um, this week, this Sunday, whenever you might be watching, uh, to hear from one of our pastoral interns. Uh, Scott Stinson has been serving with us for this past year. He's been a part of our church family for the past several years, but uh, he's been an intern. We've had three pastoral interns with us this past year. Scott Stinson is actually going to be preaching for us Been looking forward for this, to this for a very long time. At City Church, we think of ourselves as something of um, what you might call like a, a teaching hospital. So we love folks that have folks alongside of us who are interested in vocational ministry, uh, serve on our staff for a season, and in some cases even preach. And um, it would be great if you would not only pay attention and be edified and let the Spirit of God move uh, through Scott and in you as he preaches, but also to give Scott feedback as he continues to pursue uh, ministry. And he'll actually... He's already started seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he and his wife, E.C., will be moving to Orlando in the next couple of months to pursue a full-time seminary on site. So with that being said, I would love to welcome Scott um, on stage here this morning to bring God's Word. Well, thank you, Chipper. Thank you for the whole church staff for letting me do this. Um, it's a huge gift to be able to actually stand and preach and preach through God's word together. Thank you for uh, watching. I know you, virtual audience, didn't really have a choice in the matter, but 
uh, I pray that it would be constructive for all of us um, regardless. Um, this morning, or whenever you're watching, we are in Ezra chapter 3. We've been going through uh, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, um, because in the Hebrew Bible, those are considered to be the same book. Um, so we are going through chapter 3. Um, I will read it, and then I'll pray, and then I can get started. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of, God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this personally. Thank you for this opportunity to preach from your word. Thank you for uh, the people who have decided to um, watch this service. Thank you for our staff. Thank you for our worship team. I pray that you would open up our hearts, uh, you would overcome my inadequacies, Lord, and that you would speak into people's needs, whatever people need, and that we would all, through this passage, um, come to be freshly in love with you 
freshly desire to obey you. Um, yeah, so please be with us and please be with me. Speak through me. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of a movie that my wife and I watched recently. It's called Julie and Julia. It's still on Netflix. I would warn you, if you watch it, please don't be hungry before because it has some delicious food in it. We even, my wife and I ate dinner before I watched it and I was still starving. I think that's really the only reason she picked it is because it had some great food. That's her only criteria and it, it worked out. So in this movie, Julie and Julia, the main character, Julie Powell, she feels a bit lost. She feels a bit adrift. She lives in New York City. She lives in a very cramped apartment. She has a very tedious job, really thankless job. She doesn't really like her friends. A lot of her life's goals have they've kind of passed her by. She wanted to be a writer. That didn't work out. She kind of hits this rut, and she doesn't really know what supplies structure in her life. She doesn't really know what gives her life meaning. But she loves food. So she comes up with this idea to cook through a Julia Child's cookbook, which I was not familiar with before the movie, but she, cooks, she wants to cook through it in one year, all 532 recipes. So she does it. She cooks through the whole cookbook. She blogs about it. And at the end of the year, she gets a lot of publicity. She gets a book deal. She really becomes popular on the internet. She makes it, so to speak. Her life ceases to be boring. It really ceases to be tedious. And it now is very interesting. There's a very interesting dialogue at the end of the movie. She tells her husband, Julia Child saved me. To which her husband replies, No, you saved yourself. And I've been thinking about that line ever since. Like Chipper last week said that, he pointed out that there is a general sense of dislocation in the church and in the culture. In our church and our American culture, there's a, there's a general sense of having lost touch with vital things. There's a sense of, there's an attempt to recover things that have been lost. Just as Julie Powell in the movie tried to turn to cooking in order to save herself from her own lostness. We're all Julie Powell, in a sense. The theme of being lost and the theme of renewal both deeply resonate. But it hit me this past week that there are two kinds of lostness. There's two forms. You can either despair at having wandered from the straight path. You can despair at having wandered from the path that you know is right. Or you can despair at the lack of any straight path at all. You can despair at the sense of there being no inherent meaning in life, that there's just a multiplicity, and there's no way to know which one is better than the other. So you're just kind of lost. You're kind of adrift. We today are a lot more like the latter. We typically feel lost because we're unsure if there's any straight path at all, if there's any inherent meaning. The natural response to that form of aimlessness, that form of aimless wandering, is to try to give yourself structure, is to try to give yourself an important thing to do, an important task, an important ritual, just like Julie. She turned to cooking. She had something to do. But 
This is why our text is very interesting. Our text teaches us that simply having a path to follow is no guarantee that we will not still be lost. The Israelites had God's law. They had the oracles from God's very lips. But go ahead and read the Old Testament and tell me that they weren't prone to still being lost, that they weren't prone to straying, wandering, losing the straight path. So building off of Chipper's insights last week, I want to add this. To be renewed, we need something deeper than a good moral structure. Simply having something to do is not enough. And without giving too much away, I want to respectfully disagree with Julie Powell's husband. Though I want to agree with him, we certainly need saving. No one can save themselves. But if this is true, it brings up a host of questions. What does it mean to be lost? How does it happen? What does it mean to be renewed? With those questions in mind, I want us to turn to our text, which is very rich in wisdom. And I want us to, to notice three things in the book of Ezra, in the Ezra chapter 3, I should say. First, I want us to notice that the Lord loves renewal. Second, renewal entails obedience. And third, renewal is always incomplete. The Lord loves renewal. Renewal entails obedience. Renewal is always incomplete. And of course, we always stop, start with the first point, so I'm going to start there. The Lord loves renewal. That the Lord loves renewal is not necessarily explicit in our passage. God doesn't come down from heaven and say, Israelites, I love renewal. That doesn't happen. It's not explicit, but it's the background. It's the background of everything that occurs. When you look at the text, with this principle in mind, the text becomes luminous. It becomes extremely meaningful. But if you look at this text without the principle in mind, the action of the Israelites seems kind of blurry. It doesn't really make that much sense. I, we don't really understand what they're doing. For example, in verse 11, the foundation of the temple is being laid. And to celebrate this, the people sing a psalm of David. They sing, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This is, a, this is a fascinating moment. Why on earth would Israel be singing this psalm? I mean, hadn't God just brutally judged Israel? Hadn't he just driven them out of their own land, their own homes? Hadn't he just caused them to become the captives, the merciless captives of a much stronger nation? He had. He, he did. And yet, here in verse 11, Israel celebrates the Lord at the top of their lungs. This seems either contradictory or absolutely delusional. So how are we to make sense of this phenomenon? In order to answer that, we need to briefly dip into some Old Testament history. And very simply, the, the history of Israel follows a very consistent pattern, which begins in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Israel as a people were enslaved to Egypt. Egypt was a very inhumane taskmaster. The lives of the Israelites were very bitter. So they cried out to God. God saw their affliction. 
and he did something about it. He sent Moses. Moses defeated Pharaoh in an epic duel of 10 plagues, and he led his people out, led God's people out, I should say, out of slavery into freedom and towards the promised land. The theme that emerges is that God redeemed Israel by his mighty hand. They were once slaves. The only reason they became a people was because of God. His, and they became his own treasured possession. This theme shows up everywhere in the Psalms, in the prophets, in the Old Testament history. Just read the book of Judges. The book of Judges follows this consistent theme. Israel abandons God. God gives them over to plunderers to be made captives to. Israel cries out for mercy. God rescues them. <clears throat> so what's my point? Every Israelite from childhood would have been taught their nation's history. And they would have seen the pattern. They would have seen the pattern of creation, fall, redemption. Of lostness and renewal. Israel's in trouble. <clears throat> they seem lost, but God comes to her rescue. They would have associated redemption with the highest expression of God's love towards them. The exile to Babylon that happens before our chapter seemed to put that pattern and that promise to the test. But in fact, it actually fit the pattern perfectly. The exile happened because Israel deliberately rejected God and walked in flagrant injustice. God was effectively dead to her, and so God seemingly put her to death in response. They lost their temple, their capital city, their country, their homes, their livelihoods, their identities. They seemed to lose everything. God withdrew from Israel in a startling way. It was essentially like Israel was stabbed repeatedly and left to bleed out as a people. But I hope you noticed something very familiar about Ezra 1 through 3 and the book of Exodus. A band of powerless captives are oppressed by a powerful empire. God uses the most powerful person in that empire to set this powerless group free. They leave the land of their oppression wealthy with treasures, and God leads them to a land of their own to worship him freely out of gratitude. That's Exodus. It's also Ezra and Nehemiah. What I'm trying to say is that the Israelites in our chapter understand what has just happened to them. They know that they are the new Exodus community. They know that they've experienced a redemption on par with their ancestors in the wilderness. Therefore, they worship the Lord. And more on that later. What can we learn from all of this? When the Bible speaks of renewal... It does not mean a moral improvement project. Biblical renewal is not cleaning yourself up. It's not getting back on the straight and narrow. That is not what's happening in our text. When the Bible speaks of renewal, it means nothing less than a complete resurrection. It means resurrection. It means a dead person coming to an entirely new life by the power of God. That's biblical renewal. 
As I said before, the Israelites had the most clear moral structure in the history of the world. We can't even get through the Pentateuch because it's so tedious and detailed. And yet, they rebelled. They disobeyed. They were constantly lost. God tells the prophet Jeremiah before the exile why the Israelites were about to be exiled. This is what he says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, my people have sought their joy, their peace, their meaning, their security in everything but me. They have loved and worshipped everything but me. They would rather drink out of broken, dirty wells than drink from my wellspring of joy. Have you, I mean, have you ever wondered why it's hard to be a good person? Our inability to be good people, our inability to get over struggles that we've had since childhood is not merely a failure of willpower. That's how we see it. I just need to buck up. I just need to get things right. It's not a failure of willpower. It's the rotten fruit of idolatry, of disordered love. We cannot be good because we do not naturally love God. We naturally love other things more than God. If you want an example of what I'm trying to talk about, imagine, maybe some of you don't have to imagine this, a kid that wants to play, but they're stuck at the dinner table. You know they need to eat their dinner. Well, good luck in that situation. Their heart is completely elsewhere. Their mind is elsewhere. They don't want to be at that table. Even if they do the right thing and they eat their broccoli or their, eat their mac and cheese, they're going to do it mechanically. They're going to do it grudgingly. They don't want to do it. They want to be elsewhere. We do bad things because we love idols, because we serve bad gods. But even if while we do good, our heart is elsewhere, our heart is betrothed to an idol, we're still fundamentally lost. Martin Luther famously said that if we could keep the first commandment to not love anything else more than God, to not have another God except the true one, we wouldn't need the other nine commandments. The only reason why we have the Ten Commandments and not just the first one is because we can't keep the first one. The Bible says that there is a problem underneath all of your problems. Until it's dealt with, you'll never stop being anxious. You'll never stop needing to be busy, needing to work, needing to succeed, You'll never stop needing to brag. You'll never stop being insecure. We were made to know and enjoy the living God, but we make other things gods, and we do not worship him. When that happens, it introduces all manner of disorders and chaos into our lives. 
We place an infinity of spiritual need on a finite, small, imperfect thing to do this. To live for anything else but God is to be utterly lost. Say you were walking down the beach and you saw a fish flopping in the sand. What is the greatest need of that fish in that moment? It's to be put right back into the ocean. Kick it. Pick it up. Throw it. It doesn't matter. Put it back where it's meant to be. That's where it was made to be. Our greatest need is to be restored to a right relationship with the living God. That's where we were meant to be. That's where we were meant to swim. God needs to be our actual God, the God that we actually confide in, our functional God. And I hope I've persuaded you that you can't bring this restoration about about on your own. Renewal is an act of God. We are so totally lost that we need God himself to come intervene. But he delights in renewal. That's why he's good. It's because he steadfastly loves us who rarely ever love him in return. His love is always greater than our love for him. He delights in making barren people bloom. He delights in making barren people bloom. He delights in scooping dead sinners out of their own misery. He delights in restoring to us the joy of his salvation. If we come to him, he won't fail to breathe his life into us. I don't care who you are. I'm probably never going to meet you on the virtual audience. Maybe I will. But I don't have to know a single thing about you to know that if you come to him, he will not fail to renew you. Likewise, you can come to him all the time. It doesn't matter. He renewed Israel thousands of times. He'll do it for you this next time. And this leads me to my second point. Renewal entails obedience. As I've been saying, renewal is an act of God. But that does not mean that we have nothing to do. That, mean, that does not mean that we get to be passive consumers. Renewal is completed by our worshipful obedience. And yet it remains an act of God. Both are true at the same time. God gets all the credit, and yet it's not completed until we respond. Obedience is always a, res- a response to an initial grace by God. And if you want proof of this, Look at the first 10 verses of our passage. Israel, like I've said, knows that they're the new Exodus community. That's taking place outside of the frame of this chapter. It happened before. And what's their response to it? Worshipful obedience. They seek God above everything. God is their ultimate joy and delight, and it shows up in their action. Verse 1 tells us that when the seventh month came, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, the seventh month was arguably the most sacred month of the Jewish calendar. It was the high time of the year 
The first day was heralded by trumpets. On the tenth day was the Day of Atonement, and this was the climax of the whole year. The high priest would enter directly into God's space to atone for sin. On the fifteenth day was the Festival of Booths. This was when the Israelites would dwell in temporary shelters to remember their ancestors in the wilderness. Now I want you to imagine with me what Israel came back home to in this chapter. Dilapidated buildings, abandoned streets and fields, ruins everywhere. But what's their first act? What's their first thing that they do? They don't rebuild the walls. They don't rebuild the temple. They don't seek political protection. They don't appoint a king. They don't even build an army. Their first act is to seek and obey God. They worship before they work so that their work can be a form of worship. Look at verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. When I first read this, I thought it meant that Israel built the altar despite their fear. Kind of like they were being, you know, macho spiritual people in difficult circumstances. They overcame them. The better rendering is that Israel built the altar because of their fear. In other words, Israel seeks God in the midst of her fear. Fear, fear of the people that could come attack them, that could come destroy them because they don't have their structures in place yet. That fear does not drive them away from God. It actually drives them towards God. It causes them to make God their ultimate security. If I can convince you of anything, I want you to celebrate and revere these Israelites. They have actually learned something in their exile, in their long exile. They've learned that a life independent of God is not worth living. They've learned that life without God is hell. They seek to make themselves totally dependent on him in all humility. And that's the key. The text tells us six times that they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. Ezra obviously wanted us to notice that they offered burnt offerings, among other offerings. But the burnt offering was, is very significant. It's the first, actually, it's the first act that Abraham took when he entered into the promised land in Genesis. It's the first act that God commanded the Israelites to do when they entered into the promised land. To build the altar and to offer burnt offerings on it was to atone for sin. They weren't able to do this in Babylon. They were atoning for hidden, lost sins that they weren't able to cover. They're acknowledging publicly their deep and ever-present sinfulness before God. They're atoning for sin, and they're remembering that they are a people solely because of God's redemptive hand 
That's what the Feast of Booths is supposed to commemorate. It causes the Israelites to remember who brought them together, who made them a people. As Christians, we would say that they're acknowledging that they are sinners saved by grace. What can we learn from Israel's response? I want us to notice two things. First, they sought God in areas he had promised to be in. They didn't just seek him out in the wilderness or anywhere in their living rooms. They sought him in specific areas that he had promised to be present in, in the law of Moses, in the altar sacrifices, in the appointed festivals. Although we don't have the same liturgies to follow, we have the exact same promise. Here's kind of my chain of logic. If our ultimate good is robust communion with God, and if God has promised to commune with us through specific means, we ought to engage with those means often. If, God, if our ultimate good is robust communion with God, and if God has promised to commune with us through specific means, we ought to engage with those means all the time. Not because he won't love us until we do. That is clearly not in this passage. It's because through these means, we can come to taste God's love in a deeply unique way. Daily prayer, scripture reading, corporate worship, the sacraments, small groups. Can I persuade you to see these not as dry obligations, not even as ways that God makes us feel guilty about ourselves, but as channels of God's very being. And if we seek him through these earnestly, he will most certainly renew us, without a doubt. That's the first thing. The second thing I want us to notice is that we will not seek God until we are wholly displeased with ourselves. We won't seek God until we are so dissatisfied with ourselves. That's what the exile was. In their exile, Israel viscerally and tangibly tasted the rancid fruit of their godlessness. It was immediate before them. They had a living image of what was truly in their hearts, of what the consequences were, of their deepest, most sinful desires. They began to long for God again. You know, when I was a kid, this is kind of an embarrassing story. When I was a kid, for some reason, I really wanted a pet monkey. I wanted a monkey very badly. I don't think I did any research. I don't exactly know where I got the idea from. But I went to my mom and dad, and I made my pitch, and as an adult, looking back, I imagine my parents were wondering, what happened to our son? What, what's going on? What do we, I, graciously, they didn't voice anything. They just told me to go, to go research on my own. The internet was a wonderful thing. Go look at it. Go look up what it takes to take care of a monkey. So I did. I looked it up. 
and I was devastated. I was really crushed. It's bad for the monkey. I apologize if you have a pet monkey. It's bad for the monkey. It's, it, the monkey begins to feel really homesick, which is very interesting to think about. It lives a much shorter life. It's sad. It's hard for you to take care of the monkey because they're very touchy creatures. I, I'm not going to say that I cried. I'm just going to leave that ambiguous. But I saw myself that it was a terrible choice. That's what my parents allowed me to, to walk through. They saved me from this terrible decision by making me face it myself, by making me face the consequences of that decision so that I would become displeased with my own idea. God does the very same thing. He lets us walk in the wasteland of our own godlessness so that we could come to be convinced that it is, in fact, a wasteland. Oftentimes, we don't actually believe that it is. So he has to let us walk through it. He has to let us walk through the wasteland of our own godlessness so that we could actually come to say along with him, this is awful. And this is why Israel is so worshipful in this passage. They've just walked through death. They know where true life is to be found. It's to be found in worshiping and obeying the living God. He's made them a people again out of his goodness and love. He's been far kinder to them than their sins deserve. That's why they shout so loudly when the temple foundations are being laid. We will seek God to the degree that we believe he's good, that we believe he's better than us, that life is only in him and not outside of him. So, God renews Israel. Israel worships God. But the chapter ends with a very moving anticlimax, not a climax. We come to the great question of this passage. At the sight of the temple foundations being laid, there's a mixed sound of joy and sorrow. Verse 12 tells us that it's the older generations of Jews at seeing the temple who begin to weep with loud voices. This isn't just crying to themselves silently. What? Why are they weeping? Why would a people freshly redeemed by God and restored to him feel a need to weep? This leads me to my third point. Renewal is always incomplete. God says something fascinating to the prophet Haggai, who was alive during this second temple period. He was alive during the rebuilding of this temple. Possibly Haggai saw this moment. This is what God says to the prophet. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Jeshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you. 
Here's what God is saying. This temple that's being rebuilt is a gingerbread house compared to Solomon's temple. But don't be discouraged. Don't think I'm not with you just because this temple is not as glorious as it was before. Don't stop working, for I am with you. You know, the temple in Jerusalem, it was the center of Israel's religious life. It epitomized the fact that Israel was uniquely chosen among the nations, was uniquely filled with the glory of the Creator God. Solomon's temple was simply a wonder. Any, any humdrum Israelite could walk past that temple and know that their God, the God of the cosmos, was very, very pleased with them. It filled Israel from the, from the least to the greatest with such pride, with such identity. But these older generations, who would have remembered Solomon's temple perhaps from childhood, perhaps from adolescence, they know that something profound has been lost due to their sin. This is, this is Genesis chapter 3 all over again. They've lost the garden. They've lost paradise because of sin. So what's going on here? In order to make sense of this, I have to steal a line from Chipper, which he graciously gave me credit, or uh, he allowed me to steal. You can take the man out of exile, but you cannot take the exile out of the man. You can take the man out of exile, but you cannot take the exile out of the man. Thank you, Chipper. Israel had failed to be what God wanted her to be. Rather than the world being redeemed through Israel, God was constantly having to redeem her back from the world. Rather than the world being saved through Israel, God was constantly having to save her from the world. So the exile was a decisive moment. It was a decisive judgment, a divine statement. And here, in this moment in our chapter, the Israelites, at least the older generations, they begin to see what that statement was. It was very hard. Israel is not enough. Israel's not enough. They couldn't do it. The world needs a greater redemption and a greater renewal. In John chapter 2, the Jewish religious leaders, they watch Jesus drive people out of the temple. They watch him cleanse the temple, chaos everywhere, people running, people screaming. And they're a bit dismayed. So they come up to him and they ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In layman's terms, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
John immediately clarifies Jesus' words. He tells us that he was speaking about the temple of his body. It causes us to, to ask, what exactly is a temple? Well, it's a physical container of God's spiritual presence. It joins together heaven and earth. It's the meeting point of the two. The Israelites had the temple, but they failed to be God's temple to the world. There was only one who didn't fail. Jesus was a seamless union of heaven and earth. He was the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was the only human being who truly bore God's being within himself. When Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple, it was horrendous on many levels. But it was deserved. It was an act of righteous judgment on sin. The Israelites here in Ezra 3 are still feeling it. They're still feeling the death of their sin. The wages of sin is death. They're still grappling with it. Israel, however sad, deserved the exile. But Jesus, the perfect temple, greater than Solomon, did nothing wrong. We say this all the time, but I really want us to ponder this. In a fallen world, Jesus did not fall. Yet he was utterly destroyed. He was raised to the ground. He was dismantled brick by brick. Every aspect of his life was undone, unwound at the cross. In comparison, Israel's exile was just a taste of the shadow of death. Jesus's was the true exile. He swallowed death up whole. On the cross, he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cast me from your sight? Why have you driven me away from you? Why have you left me? It's an open question. Why did the Son of God end up on a Roman cross? For you. For us, to save us, grimy, dirty, narcissistic people. He wanted to make us his own, to make us his new temple in this world. Jesus Christ took the destruction we deserve to give us the life he deserved. He became utterly lost so that we could be utterly at home with God. He suffered the absence of God we deserved to bring us the loving presence of God that he deserved. Do you remember what his last words were, at least in the Gospel of John? It is finished. If you turn from yourself and believe in the Lord Jesus, salvation is finished for you. The work is done. It's over. And yet, the work is done. We're saved. Yet we await our Savior. 
Sin no longer reigns in us, in Jesus, but it still dwells in us. It pesters us. It forces us to fight it all the time. We're righteous through Christ, yet we have to strive to become like him. We're renewed, but we await the final renewal of all things, of this entire cosmos, when God will make for us a perfect world and live with us himself. In other words, renewal is always incomplete. The cross comes before the crown, but because of the cross, we can surely put our hope in the coming crown. For hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Every week at City Church, we participate in the Lord's Supper together, and again, what a timely meal each week. Scott was just talking about how ultimately spiritual renewal is the Lord's work, and then we essentially complete it uh, through obedience. Well, guess what the Lord's table is? It's an act in which the, reno- the Lord act really renews his people. Not, it doesn't save us spiritually, but it's a way that, that God ministers to his children fortifies us uh, through the remembrance that we're about to do. But we have to do it. We have to obey, and we have to take Jesus seriously when he said, hey, do this in remembrance of me, which is what we're going to do right now. So the Lord's Supper is a beautiful coming together of God's renewal project and our faithful obedience. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples. And during the meal, he took... uh, the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and as he poured it, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes Again, And he's coming again because Christ rose from the dead and he ascended into the very presence of the Father and he will return and that return is our sure and certain hope as the people of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, allow the Lord to renew you through this act of remembrance. Take whatever you have, wherever you might be listening or watching that's closest to the bread, closest to the cup, and would you eat and would you drink? If you're watching and you're not the follower of Jesus, Maybe this would be the day that you would experience ultimate spiritual renewal through Christ. We would love to have a conversation with you about that. Get in touch with our church. Fill out one of those connection cards I was telling you about. We would love. Scott will have a conversation. I'll have a conversation. We have a a line of people out the door that would love to tell you more about what it means to follow Christ and put your hope in Him. And we would encourage you to meditate um, on all of that as you... Watch this instead of participating in a meal that you're still thinking through and not certain about just yet. So let me pray over this meal, and then you can eat and drink. Um, There will be some space for reflection and some more music. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, we esteem you, we honor you in taking this meal. And we do praise you that 
Uh, not only have you renewed your children spiritually through Christ, you continue to renew us and restore us through these practices that you've given us uh, that we get to enjoy through faithful obedience, like communion. And I do pray that it would be especially uh, refreshing as we participate in it now. Um, Lord, I do pray that if there's sin that's just kind of lingering in our hearts, maybe it hasn't been exposed or we've been kind of trying to stuff it away, I, I ask that you would equip us to bring it into the light, that we might freshly enjoy the grace of God in Christ and receive the forgiveness that is, that is ours. We love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
nothing to own. Blessed are the mourners who are crying alone. Blessed are the guilty who have nowhere to go for their hearts have alone to the kingdom of God and their souls are the songs of the kingdom of God. Let's continue singing together, all glory be to Christ.
glory be to Christ, His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. It's been wonderful worshiping with you here this benediction, then we will sing our doxology together. This is from Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.